0: I bring you greetings this morning from Affirmation Presbyterian Church in Somers, your sister church within the denomination, sends greetings to you, and it's good to be back with you today, back with so many friends to catch up with you. I also want to uh, take this opportunity to thank you uh, myself uh, for the love and the care that this church, hearing uh, Joe Schlegel talk about the care and the prayers for him and his family. Uh, I want to speak to you and give you thanks on behalf of the Spanger family um, for the prayers for my dad and uh, for my family and the care that you extended uh, to us, uh, some calling, some visiting, uh, sending gifts, sending food. Um, It was a tremendous blessing, and uh, it moved us deeply, and we thank you for it. And I haven't seen you as a congregation since then. And We're coming to a year on November 2nd uh, when we went into the hospital, so I want to thank you uh, for that. Every summer, my family uh, gets to take a trip to Cape Cod. There's a family in my church which graciously uh, gives us their vacation home in Cape Cod, in the northern part of Cape Cod, for a week. And it's a great respite, and it's a tremendous blessing uh, that this family bestows upon upon us. And, uh, of course, my family loves it. The kids love going to the sea and spending time up there. It's just a beautiful time. And when I go there, I get a little bit nostalgic for sea life. I know nothing. Of Life on the Sea. Uh, but I get a little nostalgic for it. I, I drive up that strip there uh, that runs right through the heart of Cape Cod and on the side as you go up are these cemeteries. And I have from time to time walked through them and looked at some of the tombstones of men who lived there before it was Taurus Town and, uh, and who lost their lives on the sea. One time I was there and I was stumbling around and I saw a little book. You know how they have those books of historic, the historic books. They show you what your town was like when it was first founded and so forth. And there was a book there about the town we were staying in in Wellfleet in in northern Cape Cod. And, of course, a lot of it was about life on the sea and the suffering of these small towns and and the fishing villages that were there. And in it was a quote from a poet who died in the in the mid seventies, nineteen seventies? A woman who herself struggled with depression greatly ended up uh, committing suicide. Is the way she died, and her poetry. I have to be honest; I've not read much of it, but as I read on, her uh, was about these subjects and these themes of depression and mental illness and so forth. Well, in this book on Wellfleet uh, and the sea and life in the sea, was a little quote from her. Her name is Anne Sexton, and there's a little quote in there about the sea. And this is, this is her quote about the sea. She said, the sea is mother death. She is a mighty female, the one who wins, the one who swallows us all up. I don't know about you, but that's not the way I often think of the sea. When my family goes to Cape Cod, we don't say, well, children, pack up. We're going to visit mother death today. And You know her, she's the one who wins and swallows us all up after all. Uh, This is not the way we typically, the sea to us is something romantic, we look forward to spending time there. Now perhaps, perhaps it would be different if we made our living on the sea, perhaps it would be different if we lived in Indonesia in 2004 and the sea opened up and took away 250,000 lives at once. Perhaps then we would have not such a romantic vision of the sea, but it gets to our Cozy life that we have—that the sea to us indeed is something romantic. But believe it or not, Anne Sexton's words do fit. They connect with a Hebrew way of thinking. For you know, I'm sure, because I've heard you've had a few sermons on the Book of Revelation. You know, then, that in the Scriptures, the sea is a metaphor for oppression and opposition to Christ and his anointed, opposition to the people of God. It represents the chaos that swirls around the people of God and that often threatens them. You heard it in our psalm that was read as our Old Testament reading, Psalm 46, which is just such a magnificent psalm. But there, once again, the psalmist is talking about the billows that are rolling over us and the sea roaring and making the nations and the kingdoms quake and the mountains fall into it. Though the sea is a beautiful place and part of God's creation, it is a metaphor in the scriptures for the enemies of those who oppose the Lord and who oppose his anointed. And therefore, you know that in the book of Revelation, and you've seen it, that it's that beast that comes where? Up out of the sea and then the second beast out of the land. When the angel of the Lord comes to establish the authority of God over the kingdoms of this world, you'll remember he stands with one foot upon the sea, manifesting his and the Lord's dominion over this area of chaos that rages against the Lamb. And you'll remember, because I know Kevin just preached on it, in the new creation we are told there is no sea, not because there will be no ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. But because there will be no chaos, there will be no swirling, chaotic opposition, roaring and billowing against the Lord and against his anointed. And even there, before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, is a sea of glass. Because where the Lord sits, all is calm. And so Ann Sexton's words do connect with a biblical way of thinking in terms of the metaphor. Now, our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 8. A moment in which the disciples had to live in the metaphor. The metaphor became reality for them on this day. They entered into the chalk drawing, if you will. They entered into the story, the metaphor, and lived it out and received a pretty powerful object lesson as the Lord led them right into the teeth of the storm. It's a text that you know well, you know the story. Jesus and his disciples had been teaching, healing, traveling round about. And on this particular evening, at the end of the day, the Lord tells his disciples, several of them, at least four we know, who were fishermen, men of the sea, hey, let's hop in the boat and head across to the other side. They get in the boat and Jesus falls asleep. And on this tempestuous sea, the Sea of Galilee, a storm, as apparently it's prone to do on this lake or this sea, Rises up, a horrible storm. How horrible was it, really? I have no idea, but this I do know, is that these men, men of the sea, were so scared, they were running around with their hair on fire, saying that we're going to die. And Peter himself must have given this message, because Mark's gospel, we believe, is mostly the, the, the Mark's gospel is given to him by his, his, uh, by his relative Peter, And when Peter relays the story to Mark, he's the one who says, yeah, our hair was on fire. We thought we were going to die. We actually woke Jesus up and said, don't you care that we're about to die? So it was bad enough, at least, that these men who are used to being on the sea were scared. Hey, listen, you and I have all been in airplanes. We've all done air travel. You hit that little bit of turbulence. Those who aren't too comfortable with flying get a little nervous. But we all assume that the pilot is okay up there. But I can tell you right now, if we hit some bumps in the air and all of a sudden that cockpit door flies open and the pilot comes running out and grabbing some some member of our flight who's sleeping and shakes him and says, Mr., wake up. Don't you care that we're about to die? Yeah. That'll wake you up. That'll get you on your knees fast. When you see Peter... And James and Andrew running around saying, we're going to die. That means it's pretty bad. And so it must have been bad. They arouse Jesus. He wakes up. He chastises them for their weak faith. And then he rebukes the wind and the waves, which tells us again that they're inside the chalk drawing right there. They're inside the metaphor. Why are you rebuking nature? It's just doing what nature does because they're living inside the metaphor, right? This wind and waves, while it is a natural event that's taking place, Jesus is using as an object lesson for something much greater. And he rebukes the wind and the waves. And they submit. And then the disciples find a new fear. In the other gospels, we're told, and then they were terrified. Terrified. They thought they were scared until they saw Jesus calm the storm, and then were told they were terrified. And they asked themselves the poignant question, the question that I want us to think about here this morning. Who is this man? Indeed, who is this man? This question is the heart of the story. This question is the heart of the Gospels. In fact, it's a question that Jesus is going to ask these same disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? Mark's gospel pivots on this. In Mark chapter 8, the whole gospel pivots around this question, who do you say that I am? And it's this question that I think this text, again, this morning brings us to. And I want us looking at this text to see three things about him. And there's, of course, much more to be said. But from this text, three things for us to consider this morning. Who is this man? Well, first, he's the one who leads his people into storms. This man, the one in their boat, is the one who leads his own disciples, his people in general, into storms. Now, wait, you say, wait, this can't be. The Lord delivers us from storms. Yes, but but don't forget how this text began. And they followed him into the boat. And Matthew is choosing his words carefully. The Lord Jesus Christ is leading his disciples right into the teeth of this storm. Is that troubling to you? (laughs) Well, it's the reality. Here, Jesus, the good shepherd, leads his sheep. But remember from Psalm 23, the language of the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own namesake. And we say, yay. And then the next line, yay. Yay. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. These paths of righteousness that he leads his people on, yes, sometimes lead us to green pastures. And yes, sometimes they lead us to beautifully calm waters from which we may drink and be at ease. And sometimes he leads us right through the valley of the shadow of death. This is what the good shepherd does. The question we might ask is why? Why? Your sovereign, Lord. Why do we have to go there? Why couldn't it just be smooth sailing and keep us on the quiet waters? Why? Into the teeth of a storm. And we might think about this in our own lives, too. And and to be honest, there's many answers, many answers to which I'm not privy. I, I don't know why the Lord leads us into the circumstances that he does. But at least there are some general things we can say. And one of them is this. Because it's in the valley of the shadow of death, it's in the teeth of the storm, it's in the midst of the trial that faith is perfected. Faith is tested and tried. Trials and storms become the crucible in which our faith is put to the test. You'll remember the words to the hymn, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie my grace all sufficient Shall be thy supply, the flames will not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. He leads us into the teeth of the storm. He leads us into these trials where our faith is tested, not just tested to see how we do, though, that, but also tested and tried that it might be strengthened. It's like building muscle. To build muscle, the muscle has to tear and to be healed. And when it heals, it grows in strength. And so the Lord is doing something amazing even for his weak and, and new, uh, newly minted disciples here in leading them into the path of the storm that they might be broken and then healed and grow, if you will, the muscle of their faith. And certainly Jesus was leading them and training them and trying them for a much greater storm that was about to come. It would only be a year or so when they would find themselves in the darkest night of their lives, running around again saying, oh, no, we're going to die, clinging to one another in the upper room. And so this is a test for them. It's a workout for them. And the disciples started out well. Remember, it says they followed him. Now, I have to believe four of those guys were fishermen. Four of those guys had spent time on the sea. I have to believe that the four of them, Peter himself, must have wondered whether or not there could be a storm tonight. You know, they know the sea. And when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, I got to believe the four of them looked at each other like, Is he come on, should we say something to him? Is it time to intervene before our Lord? But Peter had been on the sea with the Lord once before and tried this. You'll remember, right? The stories in Luke 5 when they're on the sea. And Jesus says, could we go fishing? And Peter said, Lord, there's no point. Uh, There's no point. I'm a fisherman. I know these things. We'll catch nothing. Jesus said, just do it for me. Peter says, fine, Lord. It lowers the net. And you know that there's so many. They can't pull them up. They're filling the boats. They're calling other boats to fill them up with fish. And maybe perhaps there Peter learned for a moment a lesson. Though I know the sea, at this point I will trust him. And with possible reservations, he and the others got into the boat and followed. So they begin well, but when the storm came, they were undone. Undone. It wasn't just fear. It was panic. Just a cacophony of voices as people are running up to Jesus, wrestling him and saying, Don't you care? I mean, this storm is so bad that the boat is filling with water. And they lose it. Yet it's in this moment that the Lord shows them his supremacy. He shows them his sufficiency. He brings them to that breaking point so that there, again, they may heal. And eventually they do. It takes time. But with the gift of the Spirit, they do. Read the book of Acts. These same fearful disciples will become men of great power, being arrested and showing no fear, no cowardice in the face of it. had come through their training so that one day Peter could even write to us in 1 Peter chapter four, beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Peter had learned and we are to learn from him. The savior that we follow is one who will lead us into the teeth of a storm. And I know many of you have been into the storm. This is the savior we follow. Let us learn from that. Who is this man? The one who leads us Right into the storm. Secondly, he's the one who's asleep in the boat. Which is disconcerting. We would love him to be up captioning the thing. But no, he's asleep in the back of the boat. And wow, was he out. The boat is filling with water and Jesus is sleeping in there. I have to believe it was terribly uncomfortable. The boat is just writhing up and down on the sea. It's filling with water and Jesus is out cold. He was really out. The Lord that we serve, in this case, was asleep in the boat, and it was disconcerting to the disciples. Again, Mark's version, you get to the the real heart of it. You really feel their concern because they run up to him, and they say, don't you even care about us? I just can't believe that he's sleeping in the midst of this. And it's disconcerting to us. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever been in the midst of the storm and felt like God's asleep at the wheel? That he's been silent? That he's not acting when we need him to act? What's going on here? We wonder, Lord, you've sent us into the storm, but it's easy for you to sleep. But we're in the midst of it. But there's an important point for us to remember in this story. That the one who sleeps is asleep in the boat with his disciples. But he's with them there. It would be a totally different story if Jesus said, no, look, I got a mission for you. I want you to go over to the other side. I'll meet you over there tomorrow. I'm going to take a nap. And the disciples are in the midst of the storm while Jesus is all cuddled up cozy in a bed. But he's not. He's with them in the boat, yet there he is calm as can be. There, the fishermen, their hair's on fire. Jesus, the carpenter, is completely at peace, taking a nap in the midst of this horrible storm. I think Point here for the disciples is a lesson that my father often said to me. Perhaps your parents said to you, don't you panic until you see me panic. I watched my dad pretty closely in a couple circumstances. Is he panicking? I feel like we should be panicking right now. And he hid it well. I'm sure he did. Now as a dad, I understand. You hide it. You learn to hide these things very well from your kids. Don't you panic unless you see me panic. And Jesus was not panicking. Now you'd say, well, of course he wasn't panicking. He's God. Oh, not so fast. Not so fast. He's the God-man. He's sleeping after all, isn't he? He's weary and tired. He's the God who's in our boat. He's the God who has come in the weakness of our flesh. And there he is exhausted sleeping and in his sleep manifesting the very faith that he calls ultimately his disciples to have. And you can't just say, well, of course, he wouldn't fear because he's God. He's not the man of steel to whom all troubles just bounce off like they're no problem. It's this Jesus who, when he encounters the great storm at the end of the gospels, will actually say in John chapter 12, now my soul is troubled. It'll be this Jesus who sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and who cries out to his father, Father, if there's any way out of this, would you please open the door? Don't fall for the trap. Well, he's gone. Of course he wasn't troubled. He's the God-man. And he enters into our very situation and there manifests the faith that we are called to have. Because the faith that you and I are called to have is not a faith without fear. Fear is a natural and good thing. There are really scary things in our lives that are okay to be scared about. Faith is not fearless. Faith is confidence that overcomes the fear. Faith is a confidence in the midst of the fear. Jesus is sweating drops of blood. And yet he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. On the cross, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It doesn't fall to panic. It hits bottom of confidence and finds a place to stand. It's the faith of Abraham, who's called to go sacrifice his son. Now, do you think Abraham was nervous walking up that mountain? You put yourself in that shoes. Don't let the Bible stories become abstract things you can't relate to. Abraham was a dad. And he was told, you go kill your son. And he walks up that mountain alone. Now, don't you tell me his stomach wasn't in knots, ready to throw up, thinking, how am I going to do what I'm called to do? Yet you'll also remember that before he went up that mountain, he turned to his servants and said, you all stay here. The boy and I are going up that mountain, and we will return. Now, if you would have asked Abraham, given what the Lord commanded you to do, how will you return? He would say, I have no idea. No idea. But the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, gives us a little insight, doesn't he? He says, Abraham had faith, faith enough to go and to offer his son Isaac, knowing that if need be, God could raise him from the dead. Oh, I'm scared to death. But I'm confident. That even if I have to go through with this, I have no idea what the Lord is doing, but if need be, he will raise Isaac from the dead because Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ had a confidence in the purpose of God. It was unfrustratable. Is that a word? I don't know. (laughs) And his promises could not be foiled. And though I can't see how this chapter in the story ends, I know how the story ends. If need be, God will raise me from the dead. Jesus manifested that faith. He's the one who's, who in our flesh, in our boat, is at peace. He's the one who leads us into storms. He's the one who's asleep in the boat. And then finally, he's the one who's willing and able to calm the storm. Praise God. He's the one who's willing and able. Yes, he chides his disciples for their weak faith. But at the end of the day, he answers it. He chides them, and then he blesses them. He he, he gives them their prayer request, though they didn't even know what they were praying for. What did they expect him to do? I don't know. they just known they'd seen him do some amazing stuff. He chides them, but he's also moved by them. As one commentator said, Jesus slept through the storm, but not through the prayers of his disciples. The prayers of his disciples got him on his feet. And after chiding them, he stood, rebuked the wind and the waves, and calmed the storm. But brothers and sisters, remember this, that the storm that we're thinking about in Matthew chapter 8 is the chalk drawing. It's the metaphor. It's not the ultimate storm. Nor, by the way, are the storms in our lives. Again, drawing back on what you've learned in the book of Revelation, the storms that you and I face are at least in one sense trumpets. They're trumpet blasts. They herald a warning to that great and awful storm that is going to come. And when that storm comes, it will take more than just the words, peace. Jesus says it will take the sign of Jonah. And it's interesting that when Jesus speaks about his own death and resurrection, he draws on the story of Jonah because it's so similar to this story that we're looking at here, right? Jonah, the reluctant prophet in this case, flees and finds himself on a boat and a storm comes and it's so bad that the sailors are running with their hair on fire saying, what do we do? They come to Jonah. I'm not sure why they come to Jonah, what they think Jonah can do about it, but they come and ask Jonah, you know anything about this? This doesn't seem normal. And Jonah says, I do know about this and there's only one way out. You're going to have to throw me into the sea. I'm going to have to be thrown in the sea In order for you to be saved. And Jesus, speaking about his own death and resurrection, draws on this very image. You will see the sign of Jonah. And there we get a window into how the ultimate storm will be quieted. And he's willing to do it. But it will mean he has to be thrown into the sea. There on that day at Golgotha, as the skies grew dark, as the earth shook, and the mountains roared, and the waves billowed against him, he was thrown into the sea in order to save his worried disciples. He was willing, and he alone was able to do it. So brothers and sisters, what do we do? What do we do with this? Because one thing I know, you have encountered storms, and you will encounter storms. And what does this text tell us to do? This text does not tell us that every little storm in your life is going to be calmed, don't worry. That's not what it tells you. What this story tells us, and what this story points us to, is that the ultimate storm has already been calmed. It's already calmed. So the worst that these little storms can do, and don't get me wrong, I'm not minimizing them, they can really be scary. They can really be troubling. But ultimately, ultimately, they cannot harm us. For the storm of storms, the storm that's behind them all, has been quieted. And therefore, the call to us is to trust the one who's in our boat. And to know who the one in our boat is. To heed the words of Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. And I am with you. He came into our boat to secure our salvation. The author of Hebrews says, let us run this hard race. And it's hard. It's filled with so many trials. But let us run this hard race with endurance. Doing what? Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. Brothers and sisters, he will see you through the storm. And if we had the faith that really believed it, the faith that said, I don't know how this chapter in my life ends, but I know if need be, he can raise me from the dead and will. He can and will raise my children from the dead. That in the end, the story that Kevin just preached on at the book of Revelation is how the story ends, regardless of how this chapter of my story ends. That's the blessing that we cling to. Having seen Jesus conquer the storm and quiet it, having seen him crush the head of the serpent, having seen him remove the curse and take the sting from death, having seen that, we can be confident In the midst of our fears, we can be still and know that he is God. We can sing as we will in a few minutes. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, indeed, you have led us and will continue to lead us through storms. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Make us those who can stand in the midst of trials knowing that you are with us, and we need not panic because Christ did not panic, but rather conquered and quieted the storms on our behalf. Father, we know that we will fear, but in our fear, make us courageous in faith, not in our own strength, but because of a confidence that we have in what Christ has already done for us, his people. We give you thanks and trust in his name.